0: Welcome to Skim This. Boris Johnson is Brexiting his position as prime minister. We'll kick things off by going across the pond to see what caused Johnson's royal meltdown. And we've also got the latest on a critical week for detained WNBA star Brittany Griner and how she might get home. Later on the show, we're taking a deep dive into another reproductive
1: option that could be on the chopping block in a post-Roe America, IVF. IVF will become less successful and more dangerous. That's a world most of us as fertility doctors, we're really nervous about what that could mean. We
0: asked a fertility expert to
1: help explain the link between abortion bans and
0: IVF. And to close things out, we're taking a look at how sky-high rents are affecting relationships. We asked a sociologist what's happening to young couples who are shacking up before their relationships are ready for it. We're here to make you smarter and the news less overwhelming. I'm Alex Carr. Let's skim this. Let's start with some headlines from the week's news and give you some context on why they matter. First up.
2: It is clearly now the will of the parliamentary conservative
0: party that there should be a new leader of that party and therefore a new prime minister. That's Boris Johnson, the prime minister of the United Kingdom, officially hanging up his hat earlier today. So what caused his Brexit? The UK Prime Minister has been experiencing scandal after scandal in recent months. The list includes everything from Partygate, where he and his employees were caught partying and breaking COVID protocols, to corruption allegations, to the latest scandal. Where Johnson acknowledged that despite knowing about sexual misconduct allegations against a fellow Conservative Party member, Johnson appointed him to a senior position anyways. And earlier this week, over 50 officials, aides and cabinet members quit, saying they could no longer work under Johnson's leadership. That great resignation may have been the straw that broke the camel's back, because today Johnson announced he'd be stepping down from the role he's held for the last three years. And some analysts say it's a fitting end to a controversial legacy. Johnson was once known for advocating for and navigating the country through Brexit, And now his legacy will be tainted with these more recent personal scandals. So what's next for our friends across the pond? Well, Johnson isn't done yet. He announced he'll stay in office until the conservative party chooses his successor. There are a handful of names that have been thrown in the ring so far. And next week, the government will announce a timeline for choosing the new PM. Okay, next headline. On Thursday, the detained WNBA star Brittany Griner pleaded guilty to drug charges in Russian court. As a reminder, she's been detained in Russia since February, after officials there claimed she had cannabis oil in her luggage and accused her of smuggling a narcotic substance. In her guilty plea, Griner said she had no intention of breaking the law and that this was an accident. Griner's detention coincided with Russia's invasion of Ukraine and it could last for months for the entire duration of her trial. And the spotlight is continuing to grow on her case. Earlier this week, she sent a handwritten letter to President Joe Biden, urging him to take action on her detainment. In the letter she wrote, I'm terrified I might be here forever, and asked the president not to forget about her and the other American detainees. In response, The president gave Greiner's wife, Sherelle, a call to reassure her that he's working on bringing Greiner home. The U.S. government considers Greiner to be wrongfully detained. And in a new statement this week, the White House said Biden has ordered his security team to keep regular contact with both Brittany and Sherelle Greiner. So how has Russia responded so far? The Kremlin has considered doing a prisoner swap, hinting that in exchange for Greiner's release, they want Victor Boot, a notorious Russian arms dealer, to be released from U.S. prison. So far, the State Department has declined to comment on the possibility of a swap. As U.S. officials figure out their next move to bring Greiner home, calls are mounting in a public campaign to get her out ASAP. Biden has been pressured by the WNBA and more than 1,000 Black women leaders across various industries, who signed a letter stating that Griner's detention is an ongoing human rights crisis, especially considering she's a gay woman being held in a country with some of the strictest anti-LGBTQ laws on the books. In comments to the media, the head coach of the WNBA team, the Phoenix Mercury, said this about Griner's detention.
1: If it was LeBron, he'd be home, right? It's a statement about the value of women. It's a statement about the value of a Black person. It's a statement about the value of a gay person. All of those things.
0: Okay, next headline.
2: First, investigators are trying to determine why a 21-year-old man allegedly opened fire on a 4th of July parade in a Chicago suburb.
0: More details have emerged about what led to the horrific shooting at a July 4th parade in Highland Park, Illinois that killed seven people. This week, the shooter, who fired more than 70 rounds into the crowd from a rooftop with an AR-15, was taken into custody, confessed, and was charged with seven counts of first-degree murder. Investigators believe he planned the attack for weeks in advance, and the suspect also told the police that he seriously contemplated carrying out a second attack in Madison, Wisconsin, after he fled Illinois. Law enforcement has yet to identify a motive, but the shooter had posted violent images on his social media in the past. We also learned this week that the suspect legally obtained his weapons and had passed background checks in 2020 and 2021. It was also revealed that he had previous interactions with the Highland Park Police, where police reported to his family's home and took knives away from him after he had allegedly threatened to kill his family. This shooting, and the shootings in 10 other states that happened over the holiday weekend, occurred just over a week after President Biden signed into law bipartisan gun legislation. That new law expands background checks to gun buyers under the age of 21 and offers federal cash incentives to states that have red flag laws and other crisis intervention programs. But these most recent tragedies have some advocates saying, while this legislation is a good step forward, it's not going to be enough to prevent mass shootings. And our final headline. This week, the U.S. Department of Labor gave us a pulse check on how the labor market is doing. The agency dropped the job numbers for the month of May, and we learned that while the number of job openings fell from April to May, we're still in a hot labor market compared to pre-pandemic times. Consistent with previous job reports, the industries that have a ton of openings right now are hospitality and healthcare. And this report looks like good news, but it's got some economists scratching their heads. Because if a recession is truly looming, then we'd expect to see fewer openings. Safe to say, one group who's been watching what happens with the labor market closely is the Federal Reserve because the Fed is considering hiking interest rates dramatically for the rest of the year to curb inflation. And as that happens, businesses might have to slow down on hiring new workers. So whether this labor market remains red hot or cools down in the months to come is still TBD. Soon, some figures in former President Donald Trump's inner circle, including Senator Lindsey Graham and Rudy Giuliani, might be taking the midnight train to Georgia, because this week, a grand jury in the state has subpoenaed seven Trump allies to testify. Wait, testify in what? And what are they being subpoenaed for? We'll explain in 60 seconds. Over the past few months, a grand jury in Fulton County, Georgia, has been looking into whether there was criminal interference in Georgia's 2020 election, including racketeering and conspiracy. This investigation is happening because, reminder, Georgia was a very contentious state in the 2020 presidential election. President Joe Biden won the state by just about 12,000 votes. That wasn't something Trump was excited to hear, and in January 2021, just days before the votes were supposed to be certified, Trump asked the Secretary of State of Georgia, Brad Raffensperger, to find the votes necessary for Trump to win. Raffensperger responded, no can do. But that didn't stop the district attorney in Fulton County from digging deeper, and launching a grand jury investigation into how Team Trump tried to influence the election outcome. And now, things are turning up a notch as seven Trump allies have been called to testify, including South Carolina Senator Lindsey Graham, who had a phone call with Raffensperger in November 2020, former Trump legal advisor Rudy Giuliani, and John Eastman, the lawyer who devised an illegal plan for Trump to stay in power. This is the closest this jury in Georgia has gotten to Trump's inner circle so far, and could result in criminal charges against someone for interfering in the election, including potentially the former president. As for next steps, well, this is gonna take a while. The panel has to hear from these seven subpoenaed individuals, whose cooperation is TBD, before recommending if the DA should pursue any charges against anyone. And we should note, this is all going down in Georgia as the hearings for the January 6th House Committee in D.C. are underway, where we've gotten some spicy revelations about the Trump White House's other alleged efforts to discredit the election. While that committee in D.C. has presented its findings, it's more of a public PSA than a courtroom scene from Law & Order. And it's still unclear if the Department of Justice will be pursuing federal criminal charges for anyone on Team Trump as a result of what the committee has presented. So with a lot still up in the air in DC and Georgia, one thing's for sure. We'll still be talking about the fallout from the 2020 election for months and years to come. How'd we do? Want us to skim a question from the news? Send us your suggestions to audio at the skim.com. The Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade has sent shockwaves through the country, as states readjust to new abortion restrictions. And this decision has also brought up whether other reproductive options and treatments will be next on the chopping block in some states, including in vitro fertilization, or IVF. And while limiting someone's reproductive options to grow their families might sound counterintuitive to the decision we just got from SCOTUS, it turns out IVF and abortion are linked. Today, we'll explain why some experts worry that abortion bans could threaten IVF, and what impact that would have on families and individuals going through the IVF process. So to start, let's take a step back and remind ourselves, what is IVF? IVF is the most common form of assisted reproductive technology. About 2% of babies in the U.S. are born via IVF each year. It's an option for people who want biological kids, but might be single or queer, or could be dealing with things like infertility, a history of genetic diseases, recurrent pregnancy loss, or medical treatment that interferes with their ability to carry a baby. Here's how the IVF process works. Basically, A woman gets hormones to help her ovulate, more than the typical one egg per cycle. Those eggs then get extracted, mixed with sperm, and fertilized in a lab. The goal is to create embryos that can be tested for abnormalities. After that, one or more of the embryos can either be transferred into the uterus or frozen for later use. So how is this linked to abortion? In a nutshell, the Roe decision calls into question whether those embryos created during the in vitro process can be entitled to rights of personhood. To help us explain further, we spoke to Dr. Natalie Crawford, a reproductive endocrinologist and the
1: co-founder of Fora Fertility in Austin, Texas. I believe that IVF exists because of a post-Roe world. When you think about how you have your own family on your own terms that allows us to do a lot when it comes to reproduction and embryos the biggest threat is actually abortion bills that may come about in states that are trying to completely prohibit abortion so one of the biggest things is trying to ban abortion from fertilization conception implantation some of those words essentially granting embryos rights as a person saying hey as soon as this egg is fertilized with sperm it's a person and it has a right so you can't terminated.
0: Here's where things get tricky. During the expensive, often painful, and time-consuming IVF process, a lot of people hope to have access to multiple embryos because it gives them the best chance at a healthy baby. Just because you've created an embryo doesn't mean it'll result in a pregnancy. And more embryos mean more chances and dodging potential hurdles and screening for potential abnormalities. And the people who end up having successful pregnancies often face tough decisions about what to do with the embryos that weren't implanted, whether to donate them to research, other families, or discard the embryos. So now, the main concern is that abortion bans in certain states might throw the legal status of every embryo created during the IVF process into question. And that could create a complicated situation for fertility doctors and their patients going forward if disposing
1: of or freezing unused embryos becomes illegal. We're afraid that some of these laws are going to roll back the clocks, so we're concerned that it could make either the practice of IVF illegal in some states or unsafe. So that if I can't freeze an embryo because it's a person, my only option is to put it all in your body. That means either I'm practicing extremely unsafe, also means you're going to have less to work with because I'm going to be nervous to stimulate you to your full potential to get all those eggs to grow. So now I'm going to purposefully only get a few eggs. That means it's going to cost you more money and take you longer because IVF will become less successful and more dangerous. That's a world most of us as fertility doctors were really nervous about what that could mean.
0: So the new reality could be that in some states, fertility doctors and patients are deciding between the costly and slower route by retrieving fewer eggs at a time and creating fewer embryos, or the route with more health risks, where more embryos have to be implanted in the body. Now that we've understood how IVF and abortion are linked, where could IVF be threatened? The short answer is stay tuned. But IVF could be impacted in the states that ban abortion starting at fertilization, like Oklahoma, or states that have introduced abortion bans that explicitly treat fetuses as people. According to one reproductive health policy institute, four other states, Iowa, South Carolina, Vermont, and West Virginia, have also introduced bills to grant fetuses personhood. And as the status of these laws change, Dr. Crawford is worried about the confusion this will cause IVF patients.
1: I think there's gonna be a lot of gray zone in some of those states. People who are already going through IVF, they're investing their time, their money, their emotional and physical energy in this, are now asking at every appointment, Is it safe to do IVF? Do I need to move my embryos out of state? What do I need to know? Will I have time to make this decision? And I just feel like we're really preying upon a vulnerable population right now. So the big question is,
0: what happens next? For now, it's unclear whether or how abortion bans could affect the production of embryos for fertility treatment. But some fertility doctors and patients have already started moving embryos out of certain states, anticipating a wide blast radius from the Roe decision. And Dr. Crawford's also seeing concern in Texas, where she says her patients are asking her at every appointment about whether they should get their embryos out of the state. But she's not ready to advise going that route
1: moving your embryos is not a risk-free process. There's always risk with transferring them. I think the rush or that gut decision, like I'm just going to move them to California, I'm fearful that that might lead to downstream more negative impacts because, you know, what if something happens in the move? What if that clinic can't thaw them as well? What if something goes wrong? I don't want you to have a lower chance of success. I swear to you, your fertility clinics are watching this like crazy. Like, we are really paying attention. And if something happened and my patients need to move embryos out of this state because this is not a good place or a safe place to have fertility care, we're going to have a plan for them.
0: So before you make any decisions, keep in touch with your local fertility clinic and pay attention to your state abortion laws. And there's another piece of advice from Dr. Crawford. If this is important to you, don't be afraid to speak up. Doctors and patients can play a key role in influencing policymakers to protect
1: the IVF process. I'm telling patients right now, use your voice. You should be telling people, if you feel comfortable, why you're afraid that this is going to apply to you. I don't believe many of the politicians who are writing these bills are trying to outlaw IVF. I don't think that's their primary goal. For some of them, it is. But I don't think for most of them, that's the goal. I feel like there is an opportunity for those of us who are experts in this field to educate and advocate and work together in a political arena. The people who are writing bills and passing bills and talking about it on a state level understand the language they're using and what that means. Some of our friends in Nebraska have been doing this, and they got a bill taken off the table. They're getting language changed in it. They have been working hard to truly just educate on this. Like, this is going to impact the ability for people to have families in the state. For Dr. Crawford,
0: getting people to speak out is important, not only because there's legislation on the line, but also because there's a risk that IVF could become more stigmatized and patients will feel more alone.
1: For so many of us who do this job, we, we walk the walk with our patients. Going through IVF is nothing anybody ever wants to do. Whether you're freezing your eggs, doing it for cancer, genetic reasons, to have a family, to have the family size you want, whatever's happened, nobody wants to be in this position. We wanna live in a country that is supporting families, supporting people who are going through fertility treatments to grow their families, we don't want to be turning things back into the other direction We're now infertility is getting shoved back in the corner. Because really what happens when you put things in those isolated silos is that we make them more scary, less accessible, and people don't know as much about them. So suddenly now you're less able to advocate for yourself or to be able to compare your experience to others. And then that's just such a hard road to walk when you're walking it alone like that. For more on IVF in a
0: post row America, go to theskim.com slash well. We'll also leave a link in our show notes. To end the show this week, we're talking about the surprising relationship between the housing market and people's love lives. If you've checked out StreetEasy recently, you may have noticed rents are sky high, and that's not just the case in major cities like New York or LA. Nationwide, asking rents for new leases went up 15% in May from a year earlier. And according to one study, two months ago, the US median rental price hit a new high, of nearly $1,850 per month. That's up 26% from two years earlier. So as our landlords are hiking prices, more couples are saying, let's move in together to save some money. But according to Sharon Sassler, a sociology professor at Cornell's Brooks School of Public Policy, some of those couples might not be ready to shack up.
2: There is this middle-class normative sequence of dating for about a year, at least a year before you move in together so that you can figure out how well you fight if you fight, right? How you resolve issues. But now that we see rents increasing, we hear a lot about people moving in more rapidly. So there are a lot of housing issues going on here. Part of it is pent up relationship demand. We want an adult, We want to be independent, move away from our parents, and see what it's like to live together. Very expensive housing costs will expedite that.
0: So for the couples where rent expedited the relationship, how did it turn out?
2: There's a huge range. So I don't wanna say that if you move in within six months, it's a recipe for disaster, because I've interviewed plenty of couples who, really have strong relationships and they make them work. And then there are some who move in for totally unexpected reasons and they hit challenges and then I interview them 15 years later and they're strong and they're together and they're like role models of how do you make relationships work because they've worked through difficult times. But on average, financial challenges are difficult for young couples to weather if you throw Having kids in there and unexpected pregnancies and job losses, it challenges things even more. And we do see a fair bit of relationship churning.
0: According to Sassler's research, that's because taking the next step because of an external factor, even one as uncontrollable and frustrating as housing prices, can create extra pressure in a
2: relationship. In my research, I talk a fair bit about event-driven progressions versus relationship-driven progressions. Relationship-driven progressions are, okay, we want to take the next step. We're thinking about getting engaged and we're just trying to figure out where we're situated. So that's kind of a relationship-driven one. But an event-driven relationship progression has to do more with oh, my hours at work got cut and I can't afford my rent on my own, or my roommate is not paying the rent and I'm going to be left holding the bag, they can expedite a relationship into becoming more serious residentially before the relationship is ready for that.
1: Not
0: to mention, some sociology research indicates that once couples move in together, it's harder for them to break up. So certain fights or icks that might've ended a relationship pre-moving in together don't anymore. And that can just create added stress and resentment. But rent moving the relationship along isn't always a bad thing and doesn't always lead to worse relationships or breakups. Couples can learn about each other's preferences and lifestyle habits earlier than they would have otherwise. And living together kind of automatically makes you closer even if it's just helping out with dirty laundry or making coffee together. So we asked Sassler, what's the secret to cohabitating in harmony?
2: One of the things that seems to be a good predictor of whether the relationship's gonna be a success, regardless of how long you take before you move in together, is are you communicating? In today's very, very busy world, we often assume that other people are on the same trajectories as us. I would definitely have discussions about where you think the relationship is heading and then have clear discussions about how you're going to live. We often assume that because their apartment is clean before we move in together that it will stay clean after and you don't realize who's doing the cleaning or how do you work on chores together. Do you talk with a partner about what you want in life? And do you keep talking about that as those goals may change? When people move in together, often they haven't discussed or they don't feel ready to discuss marriage, but maybe they should discuss whether they think it's something they want in the future or not. If you're not talking about those desires, that can really challenge relationships because you want to be on the same page. And things do change. But couples who can communicate on what they really value are better able to weather some of those challenges.
0: Thanks for listening to Skim This. This podcast was skimmed by me, Alex Carr, along with our producer, Will Livingston, and our associate producer, Blake Lou Merwin. And we had help this week from the Skim's senior health writer, Carly Mallenbaum. This episode was engineered by Ellie McAfee Hahn and Andrew Calloway. And the Skim's head of audio is Grayland Brushier. Skim This will be back in your feet again next Thursday. Until then, check out the other podcasts from The Skim. 9 to 5-ish is where we talk all things career with our founders, Carly and Danielle. And Pop Cultured is our weekly deep dive into the culture stories you can't stop thinking about. Follow 9 to 5-ish and Pop Cultured wherever you're already listening to us.